The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Be looking this morning at verses 16 through 25 as Jesus prepares his apostles for their mission. And really, I think in this section of Matthew 10, it becomes clear that he's really preparing the whole church throughout all the ages for trouble ahead, the suffering that is indispensable to the advance of the gospel. Now, in the time that we're living in American history and world history, uh, especially recently over the last two years or so, uh, we're starting to see more and more of an aggressive, militant spirit among our Muslim neighbors, friends around the world. We're seeing Islam, I think, for what it really is. I know our president called Islam a religion of peace, but the fact of the matter is, both in precept and in history, Islam has advanced behind the curved scimitar, behind the aggressive, militant, uh, conversion-or-die approach that Islam has always taken. From the very beginning, Islam advanced by the sword. There was a time, I know it's hard to imagine, but there was a time when North Africa was the Bible belt of the world. That's where Augustine was, and that's where Tertullian was, and many other heroes of the faith lived in North Africa. But about a hundred years after Muhammad, Islam swept through behind the power of the sword and basically forced everyone who lived there to either convert or die. And that is one pattern or one example of a way that a religious kingdom can advance. Jesus gives us a different pattern here, doesn't he? He has given the apostles the approach that we are to advance the kingdom, not by causing suffering, but rather by being willing to suffer ourselves, even to the point of death. Not that we would grab the sword and wield it, and we know that some have done that in Christ's name, but rather that we would humble ourselves below the sword and be willing to die that the gospel might advance. And so, while we recognize that many Muslims are themselves peace-loving people, we see that that whole pattern of advance that's so intrinsic to Islam must be rejected by Christians because Jesus Christ has said, Behold, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And so listen, if you would, to these verses. We're looking at Matthew 10, verses 16 through 25. Jesus says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. But be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members 
of his household. And so we see Jesus preparing the twelve apostles for a difficult mission, a mission in which he is going to be willing to pour out their lives even to death. Now, what is the context of Matthew 10? Well, we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel, the context is that of the advancing kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is here, Jesus said. John the Baptist preached it, and then Jesus himself said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel of Matthew is written to portray Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, as the king of the kingdom of heaven. And so Matthew is seeking to give his credentials, both in word and in deed, in genealogy, and in his miracles, one thing after another. He brings out the evidence for how Jesus is truly the king of the kingdom of heaven. At the end of all of that evidence, at the end of Matthew chapter 9, we have a sense of Jesus' heart of compassion and the reason behind the advancing kingdom. What is it he's seeking to do by the advancing kingdom of God? Above all things, he's seeking to advance for the glory of God and for the reputation of his name. But he has clearly in mind some lost sheep. He has clearly in mind people who are, he says at the end of Matthew 9, like harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he calls his disciples around him and he says... Uh, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out laborers into his harvest field. And so he says that we need to pray. We need to ask the Lord of the harvest so that there would be workers for this vast harvest of souls, of lost people. And he's compared these lost people to harassed and helpless sheep. They're tormented in every way, tormented by their lives, tormented by demonic presence, tormented by temptation, tormented by sin, and by fear of death. And ultimately, they may even be tormented by the wrath of God in hell. And so this is a terrifying situation, and he has compassion on them. And so he urges the disciples that they should pray for laborers. But it's not enough that we should simply pray, is it? It's not enough to say, well, you know, I don't need to witness. I don't need to share the gospel with a, with a, a sweet mate at college or with a co-worker or with a neighbor. I don't need to do that. I don't need to reach out to a relative who doesn't know the Lord. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to send somebody to go talk to them. Well, you know that's not going to work because the Lord is going to lay that person on your heart so fully and so completely that you must go. You must say something. And so the 12 apostles are selected out and Jesus uh, gives them authority to drive out demons and evil spirits and to proclaim the gospel that they would go out. Now, the apostles, let's not make this mistake, were not the only ones that were to be sent out, but they were the forerunners and were following in their lead. And so Matthew 10 are his instructions to the 12 as they go out to preach the gospel. Now, in this, we come face to face with some of the difficulties. The 12 were sent out with a specific mission, and they're going to go out two by two, and they're going to go out for just a little while. After a little while, they're going to come back, and they're going to get more training from their mentor and their instructor. But the words of Matthew 10 go well beyond that limited first mission, don't they? And here in verses 16 through 25, we see very, very clearly how these instructions were meant for all time, not just for that limited mission. He said in verse 5, he said, Do not go among the Samaritans or enter any town of the Gentiles. Don't go among the Gentiles. Stay away from them. But here in this section, he says, On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. So clearly these instructions go well beyond this first moment. They go to the end of history. And so we're being prepared. We're being shaped and molded for a a very challenging mission. We're being told that our lives are forfeit now that we're Christians. Isn't this ironic? He sees the lost people. He He compares them to harassed and helpless sheep. And then he says, I am sending you out like what? Sheep to be surrounded by wolves. 
Well, who are the wolves? Could it be that they're the harassed and helpless sheep who haven't come to Christ yet? Could it be that some of the greatest persecutors of Christians are those who are about to become Christians themselves? And you have to be willing to pay the price. I myself was a great persecutor of the person who led me to Christ. For over a year, I was rude and unkind to Steve. He would come and, and, and sit next to me at a meal at our fraternity, and I would look at him, and I would get up and take my plate and go to some other place. And then I'd come back and get my silverware, and then come back. And I probably took four trips and did it on purpose to let him know I had no desire to sit next to him. And why? Because he was rude or vicious or unkind? No, because he was telling me the truth. I needed a savior. And for a year, he was willing to lay down his life, metaphorically in one sense, to stand up to the kind of abuse that I was giving him. And so Jesus sends us out like sheep to be slaughtered, in a sense. He said that in Romans chapter 8, verse 35 and 36. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep for the slaughter. And so he says, behold, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. The Greek is actually intensive in verse 16. I myself am sending you out that way. I'm sending you out to die. Now, how could that be loving? How could it be loving for Jesus to sit up there at the right hand of God Almighty... And watch Stephen in Acts 7 be stoned to death. Actually, he was standing. And Stephen says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, his persecutors covered their ears, screamed at the top of their voices and began to stone him to death. Right before they did that, they took off their outer cloaks and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul who was there giving approval to his death. And they stoned him to death and Stephen sank to his knees and said, Lord Jesus... Do not, do not count this sin against them. He died very much like Jesus did, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How could Jesus, at the right hand of power, omnipotent power, not raise a finger to stay, save Stephen? Why not? Because he wanted Saul of Tarsus converted. And he was willing to give Stephen up for that. Stephen was going to heaven. Jesus was standing to welcome him in. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He's ready to take him in. But Saul of Tarsus, his heart is full of hatred against Christians and against Jesus Christ himself. And he must be converted. And that path is torturous and difficult. And it involves the blood of martyrs, at least one martyr, Stephen. So he's willing to pour out Stephen's blood so that Saul and others can be converted. Are you willing to have your blood poured out? Are you willing to be sent as a sheep to be surrounded by wolves? Now, in this section, we see that the persecutors are... Government officials, Sanhedrins, councils. And so therefore we see an example of government gone demonic. The government was meant to be provider and protector. Instead, here in this section, it's persecutor and punisher. He says, I'm sending you to be surrounded by ferocious wolves. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood, is it? It's against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. But yet they use, in so many cases, human governments and authorities to pour out Satan's hatred against the church. And so he says in verse 17 and 18, Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. 
Romans 13 portrays government as a good servant of God for the benefit of the people. And so it commands us to be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men. Governing authorities. He is God's servant to do you good. Romans 13. But Revelation 13 portrays government gone demonic. The beast from out of the sea. The anti-Christian government. And so it has been for 20 centuries of church history. It's first seen, I think, in the vicious attacks of the Jewish Sanhedrin and council against the early church. Then they hand the baton of persecution off to the Roman government. And so it has gone through generation after generation. We have a hard time accepting this because we live in a free country. Thanks in part to the veterans we prayed about earlier. We live in a free country where government is, has not been up to this point a persecutor. It may not continue that way. But around the world, it is not so. In so many places... Government is the vicious, demonic persecutor of the church. Perhaps one of the best examples of demon-possessed government is that of Adolf Hitler, who I really believe was demon-possessed. His generals behind his back, mind you, called him, I can't pronounce this well, but tepich fresser, which means carpet chewer. What would happen is from time to time he would be so enraged that he would throw himself down on the carpet, rolling around, foaming at the mouth and chewing the carpet. He did this in front of emissaries from other nations. The man was probably demon-possessed. Now, we know what he did to the Jews. We know about Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen and all of these terrible concentration camps. But we also know that he was attacking the church as well. What is not so well known is that he intended, as soon as the war was won, to eradicate Christianity forever. To destroy it forever. He's a good example of the demon-possessed government leader. But you know, we've had this scene repeated again and again. The godly, humble, meek sheep of a servant before the powerful demonic government council. It's been repeated again and again in church history. It began, of course, with Christ before Pilate. It went to Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. Then all the twelve apostles again before the Sanhedrin. And then Stephen, as we've mentioned. Later, Paul before Felix and Agrippa. Again and again, the scene is repeated. Finally, Paul before uh, Caesar himself. And then on into church history. Polycarp in Ephesus, standing up for the gospel even at age 87. And John Huss in Bohemia. 1414, willing to seal his teaching. He said, his final words are, I will seal my teaching with my blood. Courageous. Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms and Dietrich Bonhoeffer before the German tribunal. Again and again, the servant of God has been called to stand before the earthly human tribunals and give an account. And what is the reason? He wants a witness. He says, as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. He wants them to hear the gospel. And he's willing to pour out your earthly life in order to get a good, clear gospel presentation out of you. He's willing to trade your earthly life for somebody else's immortal soul. Now, what are his marching orders? Well, he calls on us to be shrewd, innocent, cautious, and trusting. Look at verse 16. He says, therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. In verse 17, however, he says, be on your guard against men. So you're going to have to be shrewd as a snake. That means a little bit tricky, a little bit wise. Have you ever heard the story of the Roman uh, Christians in the catacombs and the fish symbol? They would trace half of it with their foot or their toe in the sand. And if the other person was a Christian, they'd know to complete the curve. And so that they would know that they were in the presence of another Christian. They were shrewd and they were careful. And why? So they could maintain their earthly lives. But meanwhile, they had to be harmless or innocent as doves leading pure lives, 
with no hidden agenda, not insurrectionists or revolutionaries, but simply Christians living for the glory of God. They had to be cautious and guarded against their neighbors. Be careful about what you say. If you're living in a communist country today, perhaps like in China or some other place, you have to be so very, very careful who you talk to and how you act. And then he says, be trusting. Yes, be cautious and shrewd and careful, but be trusting in God. Look at verse 19 and 20. When they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, it will be given you what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Now, I want to clear away for any of you that are in seminary preparing for the ministry any misconceptions. This does not mean that you don't have to prepare sermons. You don't have to study. You don't have to read commentaries. You don't have to do any of that. You can go and take this verse right to your preaching professor and say, I don't need to prepare because God is going to give me what to say at that time. Well, he will tell you, you know something? You haven't learned much from your New Testament interpretation class. You're ripping it out of context. I'm not a persecuting counsel. I'm a professor of homiletics at the seminary, and you will prepare your sermons. And so a preacher does need to rightly divide the word of truth, study diligently in order that they might rightly divide. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about when you are in the cell waiting for your capital trial. You know that your head is on the line and you don't know what to say. You know that the entire reason for you being there is your witness to the resurrection of Christ and you're afraid that at the last moment you're going to wimp out. You're not going to be able to give a good, clear presentation of the gospel. You know your weakness up to this point, you weren't even able to cross the street and witness to a neighbor. You weren't even able to say anything to a relative, perhaps. But now you're arrested for your faith. Will you at that moment be able to speak? He said, don't be anxious ahead of time what you will say. Because the spirit of your father will be speaking through you. Some of the great moments in church history have been the statements made by people dying for Christ. Incredible. Like Perpetua, the... the uh, Roman Christian who's up in front of the Roman governor and she's stating to him, while I live, I shall defeat you. And after I die, I shall defeat you even more. Now, you can't come up with that kind of thing. I mean, the Holy Spirit speaks that through you. John Huss, I will seal my teaching with my blood. You can't generate that kind of courage. Here I stand, said Martin Luther. Great statements. Polycarp, for 87 years I have been his servant. He's never done me wrong. How can I turn my back on him? You can't write that out ahead of time. It's the Holy Spirit. He's not going to miss the significance of what's happened. Take a minute. I don't usually do this, but look in your Bibles at 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now... The fulfillment of what's going on in Matthew 10, he says, On my account you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Who is the king of the Gentiles back then? It is the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor, therefore, must hear the gospel. Jesus mandated it. And who is the messenger who is going to bring that gospel message to the Roman emperor, that great persecutor? Who is going to do it? Well, it would be none other than Saul of Tarsus, who himself originally was a persecutor, but converted by the power of God. Well, in Acts chapter 9, Ananias, who went to baptize him, didn't want to go. He said, he's going to arrest me. He said, go ahead and go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. 
I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias said, okay, I'd like to see that. So he goes and baptizes Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul. From the very beginning, therefore, Paul was set on a mission that would end up in Rome, witnessing to Caesar. And on his trial, at his trial in Palestine, he says, I appeal to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen. He says, all right, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. As he's sailing across the Mediterranean, there's a terrible storm. An angel appears to Paul and says, don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. You must. And I've graciously given you the lives of everyone else on the ship. So all of it was the mission. He's got to go there. At the end of Ephesians 6, he says, Pray for me that I might fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Pray for me. Pray that I might be bold and courageous. Pray for me because I might not do it at the last moment. I might give in, cave in. I might not proclaim the gospel to Caesar. So please pray for me, Ephesians 6. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. So there is Paul all alone. All alone. Or is he? Is he alone? But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. So that through me, the message of the gospel might be freely proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Who does that include? All the Gentiles. Caesar himself. And what's the next thing he says? And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. I've told you this before. I do not believe that has to do with Paul's earthly, physical life. What lion do you think Paul has in mind there? Some physical lion? No, he already knows he's going to die. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. I'm ready to go, ready to die. Okay, so what is he talking about? I was delivered from Satan who wanted me to wimp out at the last moment and not proclaim the gospel to Caesar. And Jesus stood at my side and gave me strength so that I didn't do it. I proclaimed fully and boldly. Do you look on yourself as a bold, courageous proclaimer of the gospel? Does friend day intimidate you, for example? Does it scare you to write a name of somebody you are going to promise to invite to church? That's all, mind you. Just invite them to church. Does it scare you? Okay, that's all right. Ask Jesus for help. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Say, Lord Jesus, you stood at Paul's side and gave him help. Stand at my side and give me help. Help me to go across the street and say something to a neighbor. Help me to go across the office and say something to a, to a co-worker. Maybe even to a boss. Help me to witness for you. The Lord stood at Paul's side and gave him strength. Back in Matthew 10, he says, You must be witnesses for me, for my sake, for my name's sake, and I am going to speak through you. Now, what is the cost of that witness? It's going to be vicious and brutal through church history. This is not just theoretical death. It isn't. This is actual physical death for many. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. Still want to sign up? Still want to go? Betrayal. 
Do you know what the word betrayal means? It means somebody was precious to you. Somebody you loved. Somebody that was close to you. A father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a good friend. They'll turn you in to death. This is going on in the Muslim world. Did you know that? If you come to faith in Christ as a Muslim, your family is under obligation to turn you into the imam and have you killed. And it happens. They think they're saving your soul. And you have to be courageous enough to face that. Betrayal to death. The cost is great. But you know the wonderful thing? When you become a Christian, you enter into a whole new family, don't you? You've got new brothers, new sisters. There was a time when they came and said to Jesus, your mother and brothers are here. And he said, who are my mother? Who are, who is my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my brother and sister and mother. For anyone who does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. You've got a new family. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt when your family rejects. It's difficult. It's hard. If your family's unbelieving and you try to lead them to Christ and they don't listen, and it's hard, and for years you have to bear that burden. For years. And it's painful and it hurts. Are you still willing to do it? And then he says, all men will hate you because of me. Now, this is one of those times when the word all does not mean every single solitary person. You know why? Because there's going to be some people who will respond, who will love you, who will cherish you, who will look on you as the book of Galatians, like an angel from God bringing the gospel to you. But what this does mean is that you'll be hated by all possible categories of people. Even parents, even family members, even good friends, former friends. Lots of kinds of people will hate you. And don't be shocked and don't be surprised. But then he says this. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. It's not those who start, folks. It's those who finish. It's not those who walk the aisle and pray a prayer. It's those who live the life by the grace of God, the entire life. Have you heard the martyr story of 40 martyrs for Christ in Sebast? During the time of the Roman persecution, the Roman governor Licinius had determined to persecute Christians. The Thundering Legion, it was called, was stationed at Sebastian. Forty men in that Thundering Legion were identified as Christians. And so the order went out that they should be executed by freezing to death on a frozen lake. They were stripped of all of their clothes, sent out in the middle of a frozen lake. Waiting nearby is a warm fire, bowl of stew, some warm clothes, and full acceptance back into the Thundering Legion for any that turned back and came across that lake and renounced Christ. They began to sing, O Lord, 40 wrestlers have come forth to fight for thee. Grant that 40 wrestlers may gain the victory. 40 have begun. Grant that 40 will finish. Through the bitterly cold night, they kept singing, kept singing, kept singing. 40 wrestlers have come forth to fight for thee. Grant that 40 wrestlers may gain the victory. Toward the end of the night, one of them said, that's it. I've had it. And he crawls back to the legion. He looks for that stew, that warm fire. He seeks to save his life. And he is welcome back. He's given clothes. But a Roman centurion saw him come back, and he heard the few that were left still singing the song, Forty wrestlers have come forth for thee. Grant that forty wrestlers may gain the victory. But there's only 39 people out there now. So he went out, took off his clothes, went out there and joined them and died with them, fulfilling the prayer. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Persecution has the effect of weeding out false Christians from the church. When it's acceptable societally and culturally to be a Christian, then the church gets mixed. But when you have to pay for your life, for your Christian witness, then things get serious and the church gets 
weeded out. Now, you think, I can't, I can't make it, I can't survive. Well, now you're getting back into that worrying that he told you not to do. If you're a true Christian, no one will be able to snatch you from Jesus' hand. And you'll find not within you, but outside of you by faith, the resources to meet that trial. And you will most certainly stand firm to the end. Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. And then he says, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The persecution is going to come. I know it's hard for you Americans to understand this, but the fact is, it will come. And what he says is, try to preserve your life. Flee. Try to live as long as you can. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, if I'm going to go on working in this body, it's fruitful labor for me. I want to keep doing that labor. So flee. Try to save your life, if you can. And why, he says, because you're not going to finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. That's a difficult verse, but I think basically what he's saying is there's always going to be more work to do. There's always going to be another city to go to. I am the one who decides when it's over. I'm the one who says when you've done enough or when the work of the church is finished. It was God's hand that shut Noah's ark's door, sealing it off. God decides when the work is finished. He says... I, there'll still be work to do until the day the Son of Man comes. So keep going, keep ministering, even to the end. Now, the final question I want to ask you today is, what did you expect? What did you expect? Look at verse 24 and 25. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? What did you expect? How did they treat Christ? They called him Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. They treated him shabbily, and very soon after him saying this, they would terminate his life with extreme prejudice. They would crucify him. And he says, that's the best treatment, because I'm the master of the household. How are they going to treat you? It's an argument for the greater the lesser. They're going to treat you worse. It is enough, however, for you in the end to be like me. And what does it mean to be like Christ? He said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself a single seed. But if it dies, it bears many seeds, much fruit. You want to be like Christ? Die. Die to yourself. Die to your earthly ambitions. Brothers and sisters, this gospel is a message that was born or birthed in blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. I wish I could look into your hearts today. I can only see your faces, but I wish I could look into your hearts and know which of you is unregenerate, which of you is not born again, because you're still under the wrath of God. God has been keeping a careful record of all your sins, and you've been, Romans 2, storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Oh, I wish I could see, and I'd ask you, please, take a few moments and stay after with me so that I could show you how the blood of Jesus Christ alone can atone for sin. That you would not walk out of these doors without coming to faith in Christ. This is a message that was birthed in the blood of Christ, and that blood is sufficient to cleanse you from all your sins. Don't walk out of here without trusting in Christ. But secondly, this is a gospel message which is born or carried by blood as well. People who are willing to die for their faith. Willing to die you realize that the remaining bastions of unbelief, what the mission board calls the 1040 window, it's the Muslim world, the communist Chinese world, the Hindu 
India world. It's not going to be taken easily. It's going to be taken by people who are willing to lay down their lives, all their possessions, everything they own. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. People who are willing to live that out. Those are the ones who are going to be able to crack those fortresses for Christ. We have to be willing, at least, to do our part and to pray that we might be prepared for doing that. I guess my final application today I've already made. I want you to go out under marching orders and be willing to suffer. Don't expect an earthly, comfortable existence. Don't be surprised when the liberal media portrays Christians as narrow and bigoted. Don't be surprised when you go across the office to witness to your boss, he rejects the gospel, and you get no raise next year. Don't be surprised when you try to share the gospel with your family member or friend and they reject you. There's no government authority to turn you into, but they would if they could. That's the level of hatred. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Because that's how they treated your master. But are you willing to pay the price that some might be saved? In just a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to bring your card forward. Perhaps you did it last week. I'm going to ask you to do it again, even if you did it last week. Put your name on it and say, I'm going to pray for my friend so-and-so, and I'm going to commit myself not just to pray for them, Matthew 9, but to go and witness and invite them, Matthew 10, to come to Friend Day, November 24th. And whether they come or don't, you'll have an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you do it? Close with me in prayer, please. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.